0: Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Today's podcast is from a sermon I delivered on the book of Acts. I hope you enjoy. Let's open them up. The uh, the book of Acts, page 771 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Chapter 2. As we look at the, uh, the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. I mentioned a number of weeks ago that the book of Acts begins and ends with references to the kingdom of God. And, that, and what happens in Acts chapter 1 is Jesus rises from the dead and appears to his disciples over a period of about 40 days. And he tells his disciples that it's your job to go out into the nations. And we've been discussing this for a number of weeks now. That it's our job to go out to the nations. But in Acts 1, Jesus tells his disciples don't go anywhere yet it's not a good idea if you go out now you need to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes when the Holy Spirit comes he will empower you to carry the gospel to the nations and that's the message for us we too are called to carry the gospel to the nations but we can't do it without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit now, the Holy Spirit is often misunderstood, and, 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 and I think God's fundamental nature is often failed to, to be grasped by many Christians uh, uh, in the world. God is one. There's one God, no doubt. But the one God manifests himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, three distinct persons. You go, well, that's confusing. How can three persons be one God? And the reality, of course, is that God transcends uh, our, uh, who we are and, and, and creation itself. If we could fully grasp God, the way to explain it would be this. If we could fully grasp God, then he probably wouldn't be God. Because for us to fully grasp something means it has to be finite and created. And God's this transcendent being who exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. So the Father sent the Son, and the Son came down as the man Jesus Christ. Lived, died, was crucified, buried, and risen again for our salvation. And then Christ, the Son, ascends up, ascends up into heaven, and He sends the person of the Holy Spirit. You see, we often think the Father's a person because He's, he's called the Father. He Obviously, He's a person. And the Son's obviously a person because He's the Son. But the Spirit's just a spirit. No, the Spirit's a person also. By person, we mean a being that can will or act. That's what a person is. A, a being that can will or act. Not a human person but a being that can will or act. So the Holy Spirit comes down as the third person of God's divine nature and and dwells within God's people. And so often, I think we overlook the person of the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19, very quickly says, do not quench the Spirit. Don't don't tie down, don't don't limit, don't restrict the Holy Spirit. So Acts chapter 2 begins with the disciples waiting in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come They were told not to go anywhere until the Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit comes at the beginning of of Acts chapter 2 and he falls upon the disciples that were in this upper room. 120 men and women. And they begin speaking in what's called tongues. And the word tongues just means foreign languages. So the people from around the world who had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost are hearing the disciples speaking each in their own language. So the disciples are speaking in tongues and everyone's hearing them speaking in their own language. So let's pick it up now in Acts chapter 2, verse 12. Acts 2, verse 12. He sa- it says, Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? And some, however, made fun of the disciples and said, They've had too much wine. And Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. Verse 15. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Verse 19, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The house of Israel is gathered together in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit falls upon them, and this is the fulfillment of what we read just a minute ago, Acts Ezekiel 37, verse 14. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live. This is the great promise of the Old Testament, was that God would dwell among his peoples again someday. And the coming of the Holy Spirit is indeed the beginning of that promise that I will dwell with you and I will live within you. If you think about it, Jesus walked upon the earth for 30 or 33 years or so. In the last three to three and a half years, he, he gathered his, his, his disciples and he did miracles and he, and he taught and he did all these things. And Jesus was God in the flesh and God was among us. But when Jesus went over there to pray, and when Jesus went over there to go to sleep, and when Jesus went over there to go to another village, he wasn't with us. He was God with us, but only when we were. But now the Holy Spirit comes, and I will dwell within you. And the coming of the Holy Spirit is the presence of God within us, so that God is with us always. Jesus promised his disciples that I'm going to send you my Spirit, and it'll be with you always. And this is the fulfillment of that promise. It comes from the book of Joel that Peter, read, that Peter um, uh, referred to. Let me read the passage in Joel two twenty eight 28-32. It says, Afterward, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. And that's key. All people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my Spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens on, and, on, and on earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. This is what the people of Israel were waiting for. This is what everyone prior to Christ was waiting for. In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. The last days have begun, they're here. Now the descriptions of the sun turning into darkness and the moon becoming blood and the earth quaking and darkness and stars falling, this is language that's, that's used, it's, we, we call it apocalyptic language. Apocalyptic language just means, it, it describes stars falling, moon becoming blood, earthquakes, hailstones, uh, it's this cosmic language. And the reason for using cosmic language is because God is doing something dynamic. God is entering into history. He, he's entering into space-time and, and doing something un- incredible. And the only way to describe it is with cosmic language. The language may or may not actually be, be literally, ha- it may not actually have been an earthquake. It doesn't matter. It's the only language that's appropriate to describe what God is doing as God enters into history. The first key is this is that this is the, sport, the Spirit is to be poured out upon all Israel. Joel 2.28 begins with, Upon you and your sons and your daughters, they will prophesy. The Spirit is going to be poured out upon all Israel. But if we keep reading, we'll notice in the, in the book of Ezekiel it says, "The spirit, I, I will no longer hide my face from them, Ezekiel 39.29 says. I will no longer hide my face for, from them, for I will pour out my Spirit on the people of Israel, declares the Sovereign Lord. But as we keep, going, keep reading, we're going to realize that it's actually going to be upon all people. Let's go back to Acts 2, verse, 20, uh, verse 37 now. Acts 2, verse 37. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Verse 40, And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who received this word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Peter preaches one sermon. 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus and now 3,000 Jews. Remember, these Jews, some of them had said, crucify, crucify, 52 days earlier. And now they're saying, Lord, Lord, and following Christ. As we go to the book of Acts, we learn that the disciples are going to be the ones through whom the gospel is going to go out to the whole world. Jesus had told his disciples in, John, in the Gospel of John, you know, the things that I'm doing, greater things than I do are you going to do. You know, we, we talked about this a number of weeks ago. It, it kind of would have been nice in some ways if Jesus would have just stuck around for a while. Hey, Jesus, you keep doing the ministry and we'll kind of fall in your coattails. We'll let you do it and, and, and we'll take care of everything for you. And Jesus says, no, I'm leaving and you go to the nations. But as he tells the disciples, you're going to go to the nations, he tells them, you're going to do greater things than I did. You're like, well, how can you do greater things than Jesus did? I mean, he walked on water and he fed 5,000 he, and, he, and he raised the dead and then Peter preaches one sermon and 3,000 are saved. Jesus never did that. Jesus might have fed 5,000, but there's no indication that the 5,000 followed, him, followed him after after that. Peter preaches one sermon and 3,000 are saved. The coming of the Holy Spirit is the means through which God's people are empowered. Not only do we experience the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life by following Christ, and we have the peace of Christ and the comfort and the assurance that comes by God's presence being with us, but we are also empowered to go out and do what Christ has called us to do. And I titled this message, Who's Afraid of the Holy Spirit? And I think a lot of times we are afraid of the Holy Spirit. Well, you know, I mean, we see some churches that, that, that go way, like way overboard with the Holy Spirit. I mean, they're, they're rolling on the floor and they're barking and, and we, don't, we don't want to do that. We you know, we, we got to be in control. Okay, true, fair, but sometimes in our concern to make sure that we're in control, we're actually guilty of quenching the Holy Spirit. I asked some of the pastors in our uh, in our group um, in our network. I said, what do you think about uh, Presbyterians and, and the Holy Spirit. And this is some of the responses I got. This is from Pastor Matt Hoyt down in um, Ventura. He says, I do feel that the Presbyterians are a bit afraid of the Holy Spirit. I think it may come from the fact that we ha- have our roots in Scotland and that Scots have a very sober disposition about their faith. Uh, let's not be ripping on Scots for right now. We can't, Dalrymples just not, we're not going to like that. He I think this disposition got ingrained in the culture of the church so deeply that many people unconsciously come to believe it to be the right way to conduct yourself in church. It was also something that seemed to, be, to get ingrained in much of the mainline, part of the frozen chosen mentality, I think. It may also be the educational learning of the church. Presbyterians tend to be more cerebral uh, side of things, and because of this, we, we view charismatics as being overly emotional. He says, I fought against this fear in my own church as new people have come who raised their arms in worship and things like that. But it took, it took some work. We now, have some, uh, we now value authenticity and freedom in worship much more deeply. But we still struggle around the edges at times when people talk about powerful works of the Spirit. Pastor Charlie Little at Templeton said this. He said, I, I said, do we think Presbyterians are afraid of the, afraid of the Holy Spirit? And he says, the short answer is Yes. So I'm not quite sure uh, that fear is to become. Uh, I'm not quite sure that the fear is to become like Pentecostals, uh, but the concern can be um, can become too feeling and emotionally driven, lacking the decency and order that we tend to value. Pastor Bill Crawford from down by Long Beach says this. He says, "I wish we could all sit down and have a few hours to discuss this question." He says, "I've thought this many times, but uh, um, he, says, I, he says people who are charismatics tend to make others charisphobiacs." Charismatic means overly zealous about the Holy Spirit, and the rest of us become afraid then of the, of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Pastor Bruce Lethridge in Orchid Presbyterian down, down in San Inez area, he says, I know that American Presbyterians have been divided on the Holy Spirit's work since the 18th century. It was indeed precisely this issue that led to a big schism among Presbyterians at the time of the Great Awakening that was healed 30 years later, but the ripples are still around us today. My experience has been that many prominent Presbyterian pastors of the previous generation— have been strongly centered on Christ, but sometimes to the exclusion of the Holy Spirit. At any rate, I think the Holy Spirit is generally undervalued in our churches. And then Pastor Rick Murray says, Presbyterians undervalue the Holy Spirit in general. I came to value the Holy Spirit when I served in the church up in Yakima, Washington. We saw our ministry as the Holy Spirit driven, and it was a joyous time. My view currently is that we need to be fully Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Spirit as one God fully Trinitarian in our ministry, which would not back away from the Spirit at work. Overreaction is always lurking when it comes to these matters. And then Pastor Danny Hall. He says, I think the emphasis on the more intellectual side of faith and the pursuit of truth tends to trump our other experiences of God. There is worry that experiences will run ahead or away from the truth. I will say that the one thing that my charismatic friends have is a belief that God will show up There's always an expectation that God will do something. I think in our caution, and our inattention to the Holy Spirit, we may have lost this. I thought that was powerful. The story of the Bible is a story about God's presence being amongst his people. He creates Adam and Eve and he puts them in a garden and and he calls them into his presence. Because of sin, Adam and Eve are expelled from his presence. The story of the scripture is, how is God's presence going to be restored amongst his people? Or how are his people going to be restored into his presence? Jesus Christ comes. God the Son comes and does for us what we could not do for ourselves. He lives, dies, and rises again for our salvation. And we enter the presence of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And now God sends his Spirit to dwell within our hearts. Jesus told the disciples in John 14, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. As we read the Gospels, what's interesting about the Gospel stories... Of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that they have a, a, a tremendous fabric of, of historical reliability. And the reason why I say that the, the, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are, are tremendously historically reliable is because they're not afraid to make the disciples look bad. So, Lord, we hear the sirens outside. Uh, we don't know what's going on, but we pray for your mercy and your grace, you will be with the officers or the first responders, those that might be in need. May they, may, may they receive the power and presence of your spirit, and may your kingdom come and your will be done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, totally lost my train of thought now. Um, Where where was I? Uh, Oh, here we go, history, history of the Gospels, there we go. All right, the the Gospels are historically reliable, and the reason, one reason why is because they're not afraid to make the disciples look bad. And if you're making up a story, and you're making up a religion, you don't make your leaders look bad. You, You make them look like heroes, right? But constantly, the disciples, they don't understand any of Jesus' parables. Hey, what does that one mean? They were asking him privately, consistently. Jesus says in John chapter 2, you know, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. John says, well, after he rose from the dead, then we understood what he was talking about. The disciples were on the way to Jerusalem. Jesus and the disciples are on, on the way to Jerusalem. You know, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. No, no, no. I'm going to do that, Jesus. Yeah, no, so it's, it's good. I'm going to rise from the dead after three days. What's rising from the dead? What do you mean? What, what are you talking about? Constantly. The disciples don't get it. They don't understand. Uh, They're they're, they're lacking faith. They can't cast out demons because they don't have enough faith. Uh, And over and over and over over again. And then the Holy Spirit comes Acts chapter 2. And Peter gets up and preaches a sermon. Now, remember, by the way, these are the same guys that 50 days earlier, when Jesus was being crucified, they ran away and hid. They were afraid. And now, 50 days later, Peter gets up and preaches one sermon, and 3,000 Jews in Jerusalem become Christians. The Holy Spirit is not only the presence of God amongst us. The Holy Spirit is the person of God who gives us as individual believers comfort, understanding, wisdom, discernment, faith, power, The Holy Spirit equips us in our lives to to walk in the way of Christ. Uh, We call the fruits of the Spirit are manifested in our life as we rely upon the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control are manifested in our life not because of who we are, but because that's the Spirit of God manifesting in and through us. The Gospel of John says the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and of, of righteousness and the Holy Spirit gives us the power to to do the work of the kingdom. I have said over and over again that the book of Acts is not just a story of the church living out the the, the mission of Jesus for the first 30 years. That in in my copy of the book of of my Bible, I wrote at the end of Acts chapter 28, the last verse in the book of Acts, I wrote dot, dot, dot to be continued. Because the story of the book of Acts is being continued for almost 2,000 years. And the story of the book of Acts is a story where we also are called to go out and make Christ known to the nations. And we do so as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. So let me give you now five things that we should know about spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us these gifts. And there are five things we should know about these spiritual gifts. Number one, we all have gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Each one of us, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. If you follow Christ, if you have confessed in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God comes upon us and empowers us and gives us gifts. In addition to wisdom and faith and strength and power and courage, etc., the Holy Spirit gives us gifts. And we all have gifts. Second point is that our gifts are for the sake of others. Our gifts are for the sake of others. The same verse. To each one, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7 says, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. If you read your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, we call the, the, the three chapters, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, are about spiritual gifts. But in the middle of 12 and 14 is 1 Corinthians 13, and we call, it's called the love chapter. And we sometimes take 1 Corinthians 13 and we isolate it from 12 and 14. We read it all by itself. 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. Love is patient. Love is kind. And we go on and on and on. But you can't separate 1 Corinthians 13 from 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. The three chapters are about spiritual gifts. And the answer is, if these gifts are not used in love, they are worthless. If I could speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have faith to move all mountains, but have not love, the purpose of spiritual gifts is for the sake of others. Next. Thirdly, the use of some gifts are not absolute. Some people have the gift of miracles or the gift of healing. doesn't mean that you can heal every time and that you can do a miracle anytime on demand. Some gifts are not actually absolute. Number four, there's a danger of spiritual gifts, and it's pride or envy. Spiritual gifts, and the use of spiritual gifts can say, I'm better than you. Look at my gift. Look, how I'm exercising it right now. You're not. And we got to be careful, Spiritual gifts should bring us humility. After all, they are spiritual gifts, meaning given by the Spirit. It's easy to want the gifts that others have so we can become prideful or envious. The gifts are to be used for the benefit of everyone else. And if you use your gift for the blessing of everybody else, I'm not going to be envious. I'm going to be excited and encouraged that your gift is blessing the congregation or blessing the community. But we often think, well, that preacher's just not as good as I am. That teacher's, you know, they're not as smart as I am. They don't pray as well as I do. They don't, and we begin to compare and judge. We have to be careful in exercising spiritual gifts because they can lead to pride or envy. Number five, gifts are like talents. Some of them are. Uh, Well, all all of them are, at least in the sense that they must be uh, um, uh, used in order to be practiced, and practiced in order to be developed. They must be used and practiced in order to be developed. Some gifts are actually talents that God has already given us, a gift of teaching or administration. If you have the gift of administration, you might be in administration in your, in, in your career. But then there's also the spiritual gift of administration. So let me run through very briefly a list of spiritual gifts and discuss what they are very, very briefly. First off, there's certain gifts that don't really need much of an explanation. The gift of giving, the gift of healing, the gift of knowledge or leadership or serving uh, or teaching. These are kind of self-explanatory. They are what the title basically says what they are. There are other gifts, like the gift of administration, the gift of discernment. Uh, The administration's ability to to, uh, organize and implement plans and lead others. And discernment is the ability to to distinguish and judge between different spirits or to to help discern a a person or a spirit. Uh, Someone has the gift of discernment might say, watch out for that person, I'm not sure that they are what you think they are. Or, hey, that person actually has a call or a gift and you might want to note that. There's also the gift of an evangelist. An evangelist has someone who's empowered by the spirit to effectively communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost. to to others. uh, An evangelist often has a burden in their hearts to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. There's the gift of faith, a supreme trust and confidence in in, in Christ. Uh, The the gift of faith, goes. uh, the disciples asked in the Gospel of Luke, Lord, increase our faith. We all need to pray for faith and trust and hope. But those who have the gift of faith have a a supreme confidence and the supreme ability to trust when others might not be able to. The gift of hospitality. Such people that they love to serve and to host others and to make others feel welcome and at home. There's the gift of prophecy. And the ability to receive a message from Christ and to deliver it in a way that inspires. It doesn't mean predicting the future. It means to powerfully convey the Word of God in a way that's convicting The gift of tongues is the ability to utter a message that glorifies God in a language that's unknown to the one speaking it. And then the one who has the interpretation of tongues didn't know it, but they all all of a sudden have an ability to understand what that language is and to relay that message to the people. Note the gift of tongues is worthless to the church. Remember the the purpose of spiritual gifts is to edify the body. The gift of tongues is worthless to the church unless it's interpreted. Otherwise the church has no idea what it is. It is the gift of wisdom. that's the ability to understand the Word of God and apply God's will to our lives. Knowledge is to know something. Wisdom is to apply it. For example, the Proverbs says, Speak to a fool, or he will scorn the wisdom of your words. Uh, uh, Speak to a fool, lest he be wise in his own eyes. The very next verse says, Do not speak to a fool, lest he scorn the wisdom of your words. So knowledge is, Speak to a fool, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Or don't speak to a fool, lest he spurn the wisdom of your words. Wisdom is to know which one applies in a given situation. Should I speak to this fool now or not, or should I not speak to this fool? Right. Wisdom is to know what God's Word is and means in a given situation. All right, now the question becomes this. How do I know what my gift is? The first point is this. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, if you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit and therefore have at least one gift. I could, I could have written on here, how do I know what my gifts are? You might have more than one, but we all have at least one. And you were to use that gift for the benefit and edification of the body of Christ. Well, very quickly, let me, let me list this. The, give a list. Ways that we can know what our gifts are is prayer, the leading of the Spirit, personal joy or edification through using a gift, community affirmation, Take a spiritual gift assessment, and we have one on our website if you go to the church's website. And then number six, just do it. How do I know what my gifts are? Pray. Lord, show me my gifts. Lead me. Sometimes you just simply have to go do it. And as you go do something, you're like, I'm just doing this because I want to do it. And you're like, well, maybe I have a spiritual gift in this. All of a sudden, I find out I have a gift of serving, because I just like serving. I like cleaning up and helping, and I like taking plates or, or delivering food. I, I, just, I like being an usher. I just like serving. This is great. All of a sudden, you feel, you know, I wanna, I'm thinking maybe about teaching a class, and you turn out to be horrible, and community affirmation says you don't have that gift. Okay, just kidding. All right. Um, <laughs> but you decide to teach a class, and, and people, people will affirm, hey, you know, maybe you have a gift. And there, there are spiritual gift assessments. I don't think they're foolproof, so be careful about them. But you can take them and, 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 and kind of get an idea. But if you take a, a, an assessment and it says you might have this gift or this gift or this gift, then talk to others. And by the way, when they talk to you, you have to be honest. Don't affirm somebody because that's the kind thing to do and they get up and do something that they're not actually gifted to do, and it doesn't edify or build up the church or the body of Christ. Here's the key, folks. The body of Christ functions well only when everyone uses their gifts. This means that it's not just simply the pastor's job to do everything. In fact, if that were the case, it would be a bad church because we wouldn't be using and exercising all of our gifts. I've been to many churches that are way too staff-heavy, Way too staff heavy. And the congregation doesn't do anything. Because this person's paid to do it. And that person's paid to do that. I was actually at a at at a large church one time and a consultant came in and gave a present, this is a true story, gave a presentation on the value of volunteers. Now there's a hundred staff members in listening to this presentation. And I know what they're thinking, and you know what they're thinking is if we use volunteers whose job is going to get cut. Because if we begin to use volunteers, then I don't, then you don't need me or me or that person. And, and I, I, mean, I was looking around the room and I'm like, people right now are afraid of losing their job. But folks, that's how the church works. It's by strengthening and encouraging one another to exercise their gifts. If people don't use their gifts, then what has to happen is others have to pick up the slack. And now it becomes a burden because that's not my gift or your gift. And and I'm doing this task. And I can't do my gift because I'm over here doing this one because no one else is doing it. We need one another so we can work together. Now, by the way, just because you don't have a gift doesn't mean that you can't pick up a chair or move a table (laughs) or be an usher. But the next thing to realize is this. We mentioned a number of weeks ago that one of the... one of the strong emphasis in the book in the, in the New Testament is this, this call to unity. Uh, I pointed out that unity wasn't a problem in the Old Testament because they were all Israelites. They all followed the law. They all ate the same foods. They didn't eat that food. They did eat these ones. They all did this on the Sabbath and didn't do that. They all, they all spoke the same language. They all had the same rules. But in the New Testament, the gospel goes out to all the nations. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And that brings all these diverse peoples together. Different languages, different cultures, ages, genders, socioeconomic backgrounds, this great diversity. And the reason why there's such a great stress in the New Testament for unity is because we are diverse, because we're different. That's why there must be this stress on unity. And what happens with spiritual gifts is that the evangelist in the the congregation wants my sermons to be more outreaching. Rob, you need to preach the gospel more and invite people to come to know Jesus more. The teachers out there want me to be more teaching and instructional. The person with the gift of hospitality wants us to invite people to their homes. No matter what gift we have, that's my strength, your strength, and that's what I want to hear more of. And then we don't realize that there somehow has to be this balance and this unity amidst all of our diversity. Now the next thing to realize is that when we talk about spiritual gifts, we're not talking about gifts that only can be used on Sunday. <laughs> but here's the question. What are we afraid of? What are we afraid of? Are we afraid that God's going to give me a gift and I'm going to be stuck out in the street corners talking about Jesus or, or, or talking to people I don't even know or, or I'm going to have to go out and, and, and go do hospital visits and I don't know how to, how to do that because I have the gift of empathy apparently. Um, and if God's going to ask me to give up my TV shows so I can do his work. Is God going to ask me to talk to people I don't know? Is God going to ask me to sell my stuff and move to another country? Or are we afraid that people are going to laugh at us Jesus Christ has come that we might have life and have life eternally. And then he empowers us, whom he's made himself known to, to reach the world with that gospel. They might laugh at us. They mocked Jesus when he was on the cross. But love says that we care more about them than anything else. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the book of Acts and the story of the Gospels and the story of the early church and that these are stories about people that are not perfect like us. They don't understand things and they're incompetent at times and even then when the Holy Spirit comes, they're empowered and they preach dynamic sermons and 3,000 people are saved in one day. But then they go on and argue with each other and they grumble and they lack faith. But they're empowered by you and by your spirit. And help us, Lord, to not quench the Holy Spirit. Maybe the fact that we have a, a strong foundation of knowledge and truth and wisdom in the mind might allow us to allow room for the Spirit to come and to act. Knowing that we won't go so far in on one extreme or to the other extreme. Keep us, Lord, from pride and from envy. Instead, help us to be motivated by love in all that we do. And if someone's a better preacher, if someone is a better servant, if someone's a better teacher or a better guest, or they do more miracles or whatever it may be, we rejoice, Lord Jesus, because in their exercising of their gifts, the kingdom of God is expanding. And so, Lord, we pray that you'll empower us, every single one of us, to recognize that the God of all creation loves us and cares about us and desires to dwell with us and then to empower us to use us for the sake of your kingdom. So Lord, we stop and we say, here we are. And whatever you might be speaking to each one of our hearts, Lord Jesus, we ask that you'll help us to say, yes, Lord. Whether that's yes to coming to know you for the first time and acknowledging our sins before you and your righteousness and your willingness to forgive. And that we invite you into our hearts and into our lives. Or whether it's someone that's been a follower of Christ for 30 years or more. That maybe that flame has just kind of died out a little bit. And we ask that, Lord, you'll spark that fire again within our hearts and within our lives. Maybe our passion for evangelism or our passion for serving or our passion for hospitality has just kind of dwindled. And, Lord, we ask that you'll empower us again by the power of your Spirit that your kingdom might come, that your will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.